So everybody take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 16. Now, I taught, I don't know, I guess it's been a couple of years now. I taught on Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a Judean king. We know the kingdom of Israel split. So you have the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And in each of these two kingdoms, you have a line of kings, right? The interesting thing is, is that we read in the Old Testament where it says, and this king did evil in the sight of God, and then this king did good in the sight of God. An interesting note is that not one time did the Bible say of any of the Israel kings, the northern kingdom, that the king did that which was good in the sight of God. Every one of the northern kingdom's kings was evil. Now, I think that's pretty breathtaking. The the only good kings were the kings in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. So we're going to be talking today about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of those good kings, but his father, who was also a king in Judah, was not. His name was Ahaz. So we're going to start off talking about Ahaz. Uh, so in chapter 16 of 2 Kings, look in verse 1, it says, In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations, of the, Lord, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. This was a practice among the Canaanite pagans of burning their children, right? Which is pretty horrible. He offered sacrifices and burned incense in high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. So hold your finger here. Go to Second Chronicles 28. Look at verse 5. So before I go on, I want to share something. So when you're reading the Bible, you have Kings and Chronicles. And I was talking to my wife about this earlier, that when you read Kings, typically Kings is written from the vantage point of humans. Okay. Chronicles, on the other hand, is writ written from the vantage point of God. And so a lot of times you'll see in Kings the events, and you'll see in Chronicles the wise and the wherefores. Okay. Now, today we're going to spend most of our time in Kings. The other interesting thing is, is that Kings is shorter than Chronicles. So when God starts talking, especially on Hezekiah, my goodness, if you ever get a chance to read the, the plethora of information about Hezekiah, it's all in Chronicles, Second Chronicles. But today we're just going to look at a few things in Second Chronicles. So Second Chronicles chapter 28, and look in verse 5, it says, Therefore the Lord his God handed him over to the king of Aram. Aram is in Syria, which is northeast of Israel. 
Okay, so that's Aram. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. Okay, so remember Damascus. Okay, so this is Ahaz, and all the people are conquered. He was also given into the hands of the king of Israel, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. So that's an interesting thing that you had this this country called Aram, also known as Syria, and they were in an alliance with Israel against Judah. Okay, so Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he's taking captives. Okay, uh, in verse 6, it says, In one day, Pekah, son of Ramaliel, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Interesting, isn't it? That Judah had forsaken God under the, you know, the the authority of Ahaz, and they got smitten in battle. Zikri, the Ephraimite warrior, killed Messiah, the king's son, Azrakam, the officer in charge of the palace, and Elkanah, second to the king. The Israelites took captives from their kinsmen, 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. Isn't that something? So Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Verse 16, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Okay, so here is Ahaz. He's being ganged up on by the northern kingdom of Israel and by Syria. And then he appeals to a further northern kingdom, a very large kingdom called Assyria. Don't get messed up on the name Syria and Assyria. They're two different places, okay? Assyria is where modern-day Iraq is. If you look at the country of Iraq, Assyria is in the north western part of that country. Whereas Babylon, which comes into play in history later, is to the south uh, east. Okay. So look in Second uh, Chronicles twenty-eight nineteen. It says the Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. How about that? Verse twenty. Tiglath Pileser. That's quite a name, isn't it? Tiglath Pileser, king of Israel, came to him but he gave him trouble instead of help. So here Ahaz had appealed to the bigger country to help him with his two rivals. And it says here that Syria became more trouble than help under Tiglath-Pileser. Verse 21, Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord, from the royal place and from the princes, and presented them to the king of Assyria. But that did not help him. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. Isn't that something? So when you start looking to the world for, you know, to fix your problem, a lot of times you double down and triple down and quadruple down on your error. Instead of stopping himself and saying, wait a minute, I'm, I made a mistake here. I better get back on the right path. What did he do? He kept going. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the king of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them and they will help me. That's good sound logic, isn't it? If it works for the unbeliever, hey, I'll give it a try. But they were to his downfall and the downfall of all of Israel. 
Ahaz gathered together the furnishing from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. That's interesting. So not only did he start pursuing the pagan gods, but he shut the doors to the temple. In every town of Judah, he built a high place and burnt sacrifices to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his father, fathers, to anger. The other events of his reign and all his ways from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And it says in verse 27, Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him. So Hezekiah was coming along after his father. Now, from my experience, typically the father is good and the son is not as good, right? In this case, the father was evil and wicked and the son came and did better. So we'll read about Hezekiah. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings 18. I love Hezekiah. I love his heart. He was a man who made mistakes, but he humbled himself when it was pointed out to him and he got right with God. And that's always the story of Hezekiah. Look in verse 1, it says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Eliah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. So that's young if you think about it. I mean, I think about what I was doing at 25. I was... Uh, yeah, I definitely wasn't capable of ruling a nation. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Now think about that. Isn't that something? So God gave that brass serpent to Moses for what? The healing of Israel, right? That they were they were in a desperate strait and God delivered them that if they looked on this serpent, that they would be healed from the serpents that were biting them. And many years later, Jesus references that when he's speaking uh, to Nicodemus, right? He talks about the same serpent. But here, what did they do? They took the things of God and they started to worship the thing rather than the person who created it. Now, I think that's interesting, isn't it? And we're all we're all challenged with that. I mean, I was thinking uh, while I was putting this together, we love the Bible, don't we? But could we worship the Bible? Sure we could. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there who love to research their Bible and they forget that the Bible is a means to an end, right? That I read my Bible so that I can know God. So it's available that we can begin to worship the things of God instead of God. So always something we should keep in mind. Verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Isn't that something? So that's, he held fast to the Lord. He did everything that the Lord told Moses to do. And what happened? God prospered him in everything that he did. It goes on and says he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So his father Ahaz had gone to the king of Assyria and turned things over. But what happened? He became a trouble rather than a help, right? 
Well, here Hezekiah recognized that this was a this was a trouble to Israel. I mean, he looked at things he, the Israel, I should say, and they were worshiping on the high hills, right? Every green tree under every green tree. And then he looked over at the temple and what was going on over at the temple? Nothing. The doors were locked. So he rebelled against Assyria. That's an interesting point, too, because keep in mind, you know, for the most part, you know, uh, Romans says that let every soul be subject to the higher powers, correct? But there is a time for rebellion. There is a time for rebellion. The Bible says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. But there is a time that we should act up. Remember what Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. So there comes a time, and this was one of those times. Remember Gideon and the Midianites. Did Gideon rebel? He certainly did. There's a lot of places. Jehu. Remember Jehu, the judge? So keep that in mind. Verse 8, from the watchtower to the fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Eli, king of Israel, Shalmanazar, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. Okay, so remember, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Okay, so during Hezekiah's rule, Shalmaneser, who is the son of Tiglath-Pileser, right, and a the brother of somebody we're going to read about shortly, called uh, a guy, a king called Sennacherib. This is Shalmaneser. He marches on the northern capital. Okay, marched on Samaria and laid siege to it. Verse ten. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Harbor River, and in the towns of Mades. Okay, so what they did was, and we've talked about this in fellowship, they took all of the Israelites out of Israel and dispersed them in their kingdom. Okay, that's a diasporically. And the, the thinking behind that was they were removing the people from their God, right? The God, in their mind, was associated with the geographical area they lived in. So by moving them elsewhere, they disempowered them. Does that make sense? Okay, which is really interesting because of how accurate it is. I mean, think about that. Do, do spirits, are spirits associated with geographical areas? Yes, they are. <laughs> they certainly are. So that's an important point. We should think about that when we think about moving to another city or place, you know. You don't want to go to Portland, that's for sure. <laughs> Those gods up there are crazy. Uh, verse 10, at the end of three years, the Assyrians took it, so Samaria was captured. Verse 11, the king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Gazan. And verse 12, this happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. How about that? That seems to be a similar theme, isn't it? They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, okay, so remember, this is the brother. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities in Judah and captured them. Okay, so these are cities dispersed throughout Judah, and these are called fortified cities. And they had the big walls and... 
Sennacherib took them one by one by one. So I was reading this article about this and copied this. It's, uh, it says, Hezekiah, in raising the standard of Judah in revolt, must have thought the new king would have his hands full. This is Sennacherib. So that was Hezekiah's thinking here. That may be true, but remember, he was rebelling for God you know, for spiritual purposes. He was doing that which was right in sight of God. So, you know, there there may have been other reasons, but whatever. He certainly was in good company. The insurgent dependencies of Assyria included some of the Philistine city-states, Judah's neighbor, and ancient enemies to the south, Phoenicia, parts of Asia Minor, and most significant, Babylon. Hezekiah also relied heavily on the great power of the south Egypt to defend him against the great power of the north, Assyria. Okay, so, you know, this is a political consideration, right? What this is saying here is that, you know, Hezekiah looked around and said, you know, the Assyrians have got their hands full. Good time to revolt. That may or may not be true, but the fact is he revolted because the Lord told him to revolt. Okay, it goes on and says Sennacherib reigned when the Assyrian Empire was at its peak and could field armies of 100,000 or more. Judah's importance to Assyria was geographic. It was located between Phoenicia and Philistia. The kingdom itself was of negligible value, but the Assyrians believed that their gods had given them a mission to conquer the world. In defying that mission and challenging Assyrian pride, King Hezekiah, too, would have to be made an example. Okay, so that's what the Assyrians are thinking. So that's why Sennacherib came down there. Hezekiah's decision to revolt seems strange because in the process of wreaking havoc on Israel, Tiglath-Pileser had saved Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, from certain doom. When the kings of Aram and Israel allied themselves against Judah, Ahaz had sent for help. So we read about that. But it's it, the thing is, is that it says it seems strange. Well, it, it really doesn't seem so strange if you think about it. His father got him into an alliance he shouldn't have from a spiritual point of view. And because of that, Judah was suffering. So when Hezekiah came in, what did he do? He broke the alliance. I wish that our leaders thought this way. Don't you? Hezekiah, however, had a different temperament than his father's. The Hebrew Bible describes Ahaz's apostasies at length, alleging that the king passed his sons through fire like the abominations of the nation. We already read all that. But it says, thus, if we follow this retrospective judgment, it is Hezekiah's religious orientation, one of the intangibles of history that distinguished him from his father and led him to revolt, supported enthusiastically by the prophet Isaiah. So we read about Hezekiah in three main books. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and Isaiah. So, I mean, it, I think that's significant. A lot of ink was devoted in the Bible to Hezekiah. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned. The resulting conflict then was regarded as a holy war by both sides. I don't know about that. I don't necessarily think that the Assyrians saw this as a holy war. It was a political war, but it was certainly a holy war for Judah. So go to 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, and in verse 14, it says, So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish, 
I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I will pay whatever you demand of me. All right. And the king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. What is this? Well, this is him losing his nerve. Okay. Have you ever lost your nerve before? Yes, I have. Losing our nerve. And this would, this is what makes Hezekiah very human, doesn't it? He lost his nerve. Verse 15, so Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and all the treasuries in the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So he's going to garrison this force down there to keep an eye on the king. You know, no more messing around. They came way up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct on the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. Now, this is an interesting conversation. Verse 19, the field commander said to him, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say that you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? How about that? You think about that, how the wor world is constantly saying that to us, isn't it? Who do you base your defiance on? That you stand against the world, who do you think you are, right? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. So he's talking about, you know, he's talking to Hezekiah, you know, through his aides, and he's saying, who is this that you depend on? He says, is it Egypt? It's like a, a staff that you're standing on that splinters and, and cuts through your hand, meaning that if you put any kind of support or reliance on Egypt, you're going you're gonna to pay for it, right? Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying that uh, to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? How about that? So he's saying to the people, look, the real gods are the pagan gods. And Hezekiah came in here and removed all the high places. So you guys are powerless, in other words. It says verse 23, come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Quite an offer. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So it's what we see all the time, right? You have a, a country that's in a strategic place, and then you have the superpowers come in there and say, hey, you know, go with us. And the other superpower says, no, go with us. And they keep sweetening the pot. You see how that works? And so then what you actually have is you have a what's called a proxy war. So you have this proxy war that's happening between Egypt and Assyria through Israel. Interesting, huh? Nothing's changed much. Verse 25, furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic 
since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Yeah, this is a conversation we want to have with you, but you're demoralizing all the people standing on the wall. But the commander replied, was it only your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? So he's, t- he's saying to them, look, you know, I'm going to all the big media here. I'm not concerned about working this out with you. I want the weight of the people behind me. As then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and drink and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a drink of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. You know, this is interesting. I was reading an article yesterday and it was talking about all the people who have basically yielded to China. Now, China is a an enemy of the U.S. China is a completely totalitarian country. But China's rich, isn't it? And what's the root of all evil? The love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. So we have we have Olympic stars who were born and raised in this country. And what did they do? This one particular person, she goes over to China. She's now worth $21 million. A teenager, $21 million because she skied for China. You have basketball stars doing the same thing, going to China, supporting China. Now we look, I saw a movie the other night on TV that was very China friendly. I, you know, for me, I don't have, I don't want to be enemies with people, but when they are persecuting and exterminating an entire race of people, well, that's a problem. And China is a totalitarian state. If you don't do what they like, you disappear. Do we want to be in, have alliances with a country like that? Well, we have a lot of leaders in this country who certainly want us to be. Exactly, on both sides of the aisles, Republicans and Democrats. And why? Because they got a lot of cha-ching. We're selling huge tracts of our land to the Chinese. We're selling our entertainment industry to the Chinese. We're selling everything. Everything has a price tag on it. And the Chinese are happy to pay. There's something really wrong here. Verse 32, it's, uh, yeah, let me read that whole sentence over again, starting with then in 31. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and, and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. So it's the classic carrot or the stick, right? Right. Yeah, that sounds like a, exactly. My wife just said that sounds a lot like what God said. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. And I'll tell you, that's the, the devil's first line of offense is to talk you out of your faith. And if you don't comply, then he will beat you out of your faith. He would rather entice you. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are all the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shephraim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued? These are the uh, 
the fortified cities, by the way. Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? He's, he's saying to him, look, we got legacy on our side, folks. We're powerful. Everybody we fight against capitulates. So why would you want to hold out for this king who, who claims confidence in this God? Isn't that something? But what did the people do in verse 36? I love this. But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply. Why? Because the king had commanded. So this guy was trying to stir them up to a reaction, and the people refused. I love that. I love that. That's called spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline. And it says, because the Lord had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. And you understand what the clothes torn is all about. They, they did it in anguish and grief at what was being said. And they went to him. It was outrageous what this man had said and done in front of all the people. And they were deeply bothered by it, and they went to Hezekiah. Okay, Second Kings 19, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. There's a big key right there. When you are faced with crisis, when you are faced with confusion and self-doubt, when you are faced with persecution and fear, when somebody's out there saying everybody is against you, right? What do you do? Well, you get humble before the Lord. Sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. That's a mind picture, isn't it? It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Isn't that beautiful? See, God listens to the words of men. And when people ridicule God, God hears it. And there's retribution. Verse 5, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I am going to put a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. That's pretty specific, isn't it? So this is the prophecy against Sennacherib. Sennacherib sent his messengers in to threaten Judah, and God said through Isaiah the prophet, not to worry. It's all taken care of. Verse 8, when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now, Sennacherib received a report from Tirhaka, the Cushite king of Egypt. Tirhaka, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? 
Did the God of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Goshen and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim or Hena or Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the messenger and read it. He went up to the Lord of God, and what did he do? He spread it out before the Lord, this letter. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Beautiful, isn't it? You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open my eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, that the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. We need to think like this, don't we? When somebody insults our God, it should bother us. We can't just be of the persuasion that when somebody says something derisive about Christianity or about God, we're like, eh, you know, you got your opinion, I got mine. We need to be bothered by that. They spoke ill of my father. You see that? It is true in verse 17, O Lord, that the Assyrian king has laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. I love that. You alone are God. Verse 20, then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I have heard your prayers concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. <laughs> now that's defiance. I love it. That's holy defiance. I read that and I think of David standing against Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's that kind of defiance. We are far too timid, far too timid as Christians. We should have a good dose of this defiance. Let me read that over again. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you praised or have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have heaped insults on the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains and utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down the tallest cedars, the choicest of the pines. I have reached its remotest parts, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained. I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. 
but I know where you stay and where you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. Isn't that something? That's what God says. This will be a sign for you, old Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. So, so this means that, you know, initially there's going to be, you're going to be gleaning, you know, picking up seed off the ground. But by the third year, you're going to have full, full, you know, restitution of your crops. This is a sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself. Yeah, okay. Verse 30. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Because remember, Jerusalem is the city of David, right? Verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adremelech and Sherezer cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Asherhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Isn't that something? So we'll go one more chapter here. Second Kings 20, verse 1. And in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. Hezekiah had asked, and by the way, that, that was most likely cancer that Hezekiah had, that boil. I mean, think about that. And they put together this poultice and applied it and it, and it healed him. I, I think that's cool, huh? Uh, Hezekiah then asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go out to the temple and the Lord on the third day from now? And Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. 
Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps, said Hezekiah. Rather, have it go back 10 steps. Was the shadow going a different way? Was that the idea? Sure. And the movement of the sun. Uh, Verse 11, then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord and the Lord made the shadow go back 10 steps. It had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Verse 12, at that time, Merodach Baladin, son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. So remember, so you've got Assyria, which is in the northwestern part of current day Iraq. Babylon, which is an up and coming power, is in the southeast. Okay, and so this king just basically, you know, said, hey, let's get into an alliance. 13. Hezekiah received the messenger and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oils, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. Was that smart? No, not too smart of him. Was he showing off? Maybe a little bit. Yeah. And he was doing it to a power that was a dominant power in the region. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet said, what do they see in your palace? Well, they saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's that's pretty harsh, isn't it? So we have these lapses in our lives where we don't believe in God and maybe we want to show off a little bit and enter into alliances with people that we ought not to be entering into alliances with, right? For all kinds of worldly reasons. The thing that comes to mind a lot of times is our political affiliations, right? We want certain things to happen in our culture and we're willing to enter into alliances with people that God doesn't approve of. So we need to be aware of that sort of thing. My political party is not my fellowship. This is my fellowship, right? This is my fellowship. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading a book, by the way. It's called The uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's about all the events that led up to Hitler's takeover of Germany and, and then ultimately World War II and then his, you know, his fall. But it has always been a question in my mind that Germany is the land of Martin Luther, right? I mean, you had devoutness in that, in that land that was unequaled to any other country. So how did you have Martin Luther in the 1500s and Hitler in the 1900s? That was always very curious to me. And what happened to the church? Why didn't the church stand up? One of the great weaknesses of the German church was that, you know, we talk about separation of church and state. Well, there wasn't a separation between church and state in the German model. And you you might think to yourself, well, that's a good thing. No, it's not. Because when Hitler rose to power and he became the authoritarian, what happened to the church? They submitted. Yeah, they submitted, right? So thank God that we live in a country that separates church and state. Because hopefully the church is going to stand up when somebody tries to take power here that's going to hurt us or harm us, right? Makes makes a lot of sense. It says, the word of the Lord, verse 19, uh, you have spoken is good, as a guy replied, or he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, 
all his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. So isn't he great? And like I said, there's a lot more reading about Hezekiah in Isaiah and Second Chronicles. So I encourage you to look into it. There was just way too much material to try to cram into a teaching. But anyway, be Hezekiah's there. All right. Father, we, we love you. And Father, we ask for you to give us the heart of Hezekiah. My Father, that when we drop the ball and we miss it, that Father, we can be humble and repent. And that Father, we have just the fortitude and the defiance against wickedness that we just will not stand for it. So Father, we thank you that you stand with us and stand by our side against the great powers of Assyria in our day and time. And we thank you for this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Fire we rise, it takes away our shame.